Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your host, Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez, and we're sitting here today with our old and dear friend, Tom Silvestri, who has an extensive background in the business. He's one of the most um, knowledgeable people that we know in terms of how the business actually works. What he does is he's a um, essentially a story development consultant, which he's going to tell us a little bit more about about it now. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great fun, as always, with you folks. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what a script consultant does? Well, my approach is hopefully a little different from um, some of the people out there because I come from a very serious story development background. I've been watching movies seriously for about 40 years, and um, I've worked for more than 25 years in story development in Hollywood and in L.A., that, so in other words, Hollywood films, non-Hollywood films. And um, the, the idea of story development, helping writers, directors, producers develop a project, covers a lot of things, starting with, you know, the log line on a wet cocktail napkin to the 18th draft of a screenplay. And my job is to see where on that uh, spectrum the client is and try to do exactly what they need to come up with a movie that will be shown, critically acclaimed, and make money. How did you get into the, the um, script consulting business? Like, where did you begin? Well, actually, um, I went to the NYU Film School emphasizing screenwriting. And I studied at the USC Graduate Writing Program, where they told us on the first day that the degree itself was worthless, so don't bother getting the degree. <laughs> so I took the... They meant worthless as in no one will give you a job just because you have the degree. So I took half the program and then went to work and uh, in, in book publishing, actually, in New York. And when I came to uh, Los Angeles... Because I had an, a background as a book editor and had gone to film school, I was offered um, a job or two dealing with movie material. Um, and you're offered a job and you have no money and don't know anybody, it's often a good idea to take it. <laughs> so are you um, telling our listeners that you don't think it's valuable to do a graduate program in, in, um, in, in writing or screenwriting or... What what do you what what is your view on on film school? Um, the quick answer to your question is not at all. I think the most important thing is for people to do what feels right for them. There are born intuitive filmmakers, and there are people who study forever and become great. And it's really a matter of deciding what path works for you. My view on film schools is that they're very very valuable in some ways. Um, obviously you're exposed to a lot in a short amount of time. If you come from a part of the country in which there isn't a great filmmaking presence and you go to a film school in a major city, it's tremendous. I always tell people going to the NYU Film School was amazing because the campus was Manhattan. And there were more, oh, I guess we don't have these anymore. I was going to say there were more revival theaters, as we called them there, than anywhere else in the world, except maybe for Paris. You could see... Literally, your friend could say, so what's the big deal about the Jean-Luc Godard person? And within eight months, you could see every film he'd made between the Revival Theaters, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum, and so on. 
So those are all things that are great about film school. Uh, the What they were trying to say at USC was don't get too carried away with a piece of paper substituting for talent, inspiration, drive, and all the other stuff that... I, I think today they probably teach that more in film school. Even when I went to USC, I had some tremendous professors who will... I'll probably tell a story or two from them later on who really taught the business and surviving in the business and understanding the business. Go ahead and tell them now. Oh, well, I'll give you a good example. Um, I had a professor named Kenneth Evans, who I believe is no longer with us, who had been a VP at several studios at a very, very interesting time, sort of mid-60s to 70s when the studios were in upheaval and were really trying a lot of kind of movies that they never would have thought of making before. And he said just amazing things. I mean, whether tactically or inspirationally, for example, he would say things to us like, always speak last in the meeting. And we'd say, why? And he'd say, well, first of all, if you're like drunk or out of it or whatever, if you don't know what to say, you can listen to everybody else and crib a little bit from them and then come up with an opinion. And then more seriously, he'd say, but by not looking too eager... You look wise. You will become wise by listening first rather than talking first. And he said, in the context, it makes you look so much better. He said, I used to be in meetings, and the head of the studio would say, Ken, we haven't heard from you yet. What do you think? So he, you know, just wonderful things like that that you wouldn't know if you hadn't spent 30 years in the business. Um, he, of course, also knew a lot of stuff about uh, kind of how movies get made in terms of who's really driving the project, um, you know, why, for example, a studio buys a script for a lot of money, but um, then it's discovered that the head of the studio doesn't really like it, but they're stuck with it. Well, you don't just write off a million dollars that you've paid for a screenplay. You've got to figure out how to make it. So, you know, those kind of politics, which, you know, a lot of us, even if we've been in the business... They're not going to tell you the internal politics, so it helps you to sort of try to learn them or figure them out, if only for your own sanity, you know, so that, you know, when you say, oh, my project didn't make it, and here's why, your understanding comes out of real life rather than some kind of illusion, some kind of entitlement fantasy or prejudice or something. Well, maybe you can answer this question then because I actually had a situation like that where I wrote a script with a writing partner and it sold to a studio and it sold for a great deal of money and then they subsequently never made it. They continued to rewrite it. They, you know, development hell, I guess is what you would call it. And they must have um, spent it between two and three million dollars on just the literary property by now. So how do you explain that and what does one do about something like that? What does, uh, there are several ways I think I would explain that. What do you as the filmmaker do about that in that situation? Well, uh, the first part, um, I would refer people to the scene in The Player in which Tim Robbins, if I remember correctly, I think it's his scene, describes how he's going to pretend to support rival exec Peter Gallagher's project just long enough to get enough power to sink it. I mean, and these things, you know, they go deeper than the business. Uh, they go to what drives people and what are they really trying to do. So that can always come up. Um, and yes, by you, you like the way you're, grimacing it's like but you know Kamala you know the 
it's like sports or music or anything competitive, the more you get out on the field, the less it hurts. You kind of, you get to the point where you're amazed at the things you've seen and don't shock you anymore. Um, in terms of what to do, um, the main thing is, I don't remember what happened with that project with you. Maybe I haven't heard that story, but I'd say the most important thing is not to give up on the project itself because it is true that projects have a life of their own. I mean, let's think of some good examples of movies that took forever to make. Well, The Stuntman, for example, which I think is a wonderful movie that the studio didn't want to release. Um, I remember reading that Richard Rush, just every time he got the slightest break in anything, just said to people, what about The Stuntman? And people would just keep throwing him out of offices, saying, forget that one. But one day, a couple of people... Uh, came together and decided to make it. And that's really, that kind of uh, long-term view is what you need. One of the things about Tom that I know is that he knows a lot about uh, films. He's seen a lot of films. He's like an encyclopedia of filmmaking, and that's not just uh, here in Hollywood, but also in, in other parts of the world. Um, were you watching a great number of films from a very young age? Well, the story I say about that is when I was about 13, I watched an English-dubbed version of Fellini's Eight and a Half on television. Actually, I'd already seen some foreign films. I had a grandmother who loved Italian movies, took me to see Fellini's La Strada when I was like 12. But I remember watching Eight and a Half, for those who haven't seen it, this rather flamboyant movie about the life of a movie director who's confused and struggling and hedonistic and depressed and whatever, and I was intrigued by it, having not seen really any movie like that. But then I read that Mast Marcello Mastroani, the late great Italian actor, said that the way he and Federico Fellini made films was they got up, you know, were serious, made the movie all day, but at 5 o'clock, all work ended, and then they went to the Trattoria to eat, drink, romance. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is great. <laughs> So um, that started it off. But yeah, I saw, uh, well, I'll tell you an interesting sociological perspective of mine. My dad fought in World War II and was actually shot down in France and stayed in a hospital there for a long time. And one thing I didn't realize till much later was, I mean, he was not a highly educated guy. He loved movies, but he knew foreign movies and he was intrigued about foreign movies. And because of the way the world was set up, I think, after World War II, there was a lot of interest in sort of America and Europe as allies and cultural uh, exchanges. So also, when I was a kid, it was... Nobody complained about subtitles. I mean, very few people. Um, people talked about, you know, Brigitte Bardot and Sophia Loren the same way they talked about Elizabeth Taylor and Raquel Welch. You know, they didn't... Well, I'm sorry about that, Sophia. I know Raquel Welch shouldn't be put in your category as an actress. Um, she's okay, but she's not Sophia Loren. Um, so, yes, it was, uh, it was much more multicultural and global culturally than we probably think today. Now, when you um, started out, okay, so you went, to, you went to NYU film school, and then um, what was your first job in the, in the entertainment industry? My first job was working for Valerie Harper. My first full-time job was working for Valerie Harper on the MGM lot where she had a company with her mm, partner who became her husband, Tony Cacciotti. And um, 
this is an insight into how Hollywood works. Um, I was effectively an executive, but not in title. What does that mean? It means I had an expense account. I had the right to screen movies. I had a parking space on the lot. But if you look on the MGM ledger, I'm not credited as an executive. So this gets us into a very important Hollywood theme. Reality and uh, whatever, uh, myth or whatever. I was doing an executive job, and I suspect I might have gotten the job because some people turned it down because it wasn't officially an executive job. I just thought this beats stuff I, you know, don't know how to do, like, you know, other jobs or driving a cab or something, so I better take it. Um, after that, I worked a similar job for Richard Nestor Shapiro, who created Dynasty, and their story is actually very interesting. Maybe I can give sort of a 30-second uh, summary on that. Um, they started as soap opera writers, and um, what happened with them was when Dallas was a big hit on TV. Aaron Spelling asked them to create a rival show, and they created Dynasty. And having suffered as hardworking, lowly-paid writers for years, they were smart enough to get a piece of the show financially. So when Dynasty became a success, they became immensely wealthy and had enormous power to do whatever they wanted, which, when they hired me, was to develop feature films for them. How did they work that deal um, of getting a piece? Is that something they contracted with spelling or the network? Or how did, how, I mean, because that's almost impossible to do. I wonder, um, I'm not as up on the TV stuff now as I was then. And I wonder if maybe it's more accurate to say that's almost impossible to do today. All I know then was what I heard from Esther was, I mean, she, she didn't brag or anything like that, but w the impression I got from them was Aaron really wanted a show to go up against Dallas, and he was willing to make a kind of deal that maybe was not generally made. So you were in film development for them. Can you tell me, um, what is that process like when you're developing? Uh, you're, I assume you're getting scripts and reading them. Um, can you tell me something about what that was like at that time? Well... The most succinct thing I can probably say is when I met Larry Gordon, who was a very big producer at the time, and I guess still is, he's just older, I said to him once, Larry, I, you know, I read that you have 40 projects in development. How can you have 40 projects in development? How do you even do it? And he said, well, Tom, a project in development is anything from, as I said, a log line on a wet cocktail napkin to the 20th draft of a screenplay. So if you're good at it or serious about it. Development is absolutely anything. And I try to do this as a consultant. I, I tell people, I will talk to you about an idea. I will read something you've written. I will discuss structuring a company with you. I mean, I have clients who have only written a script for a short film. And I have clients who have millions of dollars to develop a whole slate of movies. Um, and the best development executive would be the one who understands that the minute he gets behind that desk and says, I'm here to make things happen. Um, so, yes, I, I read scripts, I read books, I met with writers, uh, I screened old movies for remake possibilities. Um, and another thing I say to people, I've said this to you guys, I'm sure, that I say to clients often, sometimes people are just talking, you know, about their marriage or their kid or their dog, and I'll say to them, you should write that. I mean, that's an amazing idea for a movie. Sometimes it's as simple as that. People 
are so inside their experience, they don't see what a really good concept might be. One thing I wanted to mention is that um, Tom has a business called Sylvestri Storyworks, which is at sylvestristoryworks.com, where he does freelance consulting for um, anyone from studios to individuals. Is that right? It is. um, I... The site um, has testimonials from studio and other people, filmmakers, writers, studio heads, executives. It has some mission statements and descriptions of me, um, what I do and why, a list of all these jobs and um, my background, and also explains how I work, not just in terms of um, pay or formats for notes I write, but also, for example, I meet for free with people. Um, and see what they want to do. And if we talk for two hours and they don't think they can use me, that's fine. I only charge anything when we've decided specifically what should be done. And that can be open-ended or long-term. I always tell people, it doesn't matter to me if I work for you once a year or five times a year or if you become an ongoing client. I don't need any one thing you know, from any one person. And I don't need health benefits or a parking space or any of that. <laughs> Can you tell me, um, so you've been doing uh, script consulting for a lot of different companies for a number of years. Can you tell us the process of what goes on when um, you take a script and and you read it and how you explain this to them and how you choose, just uh, a little bit about the process itself. And also, um, in, in the context of that, let's say I send a script to a company. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens to my script when it gets there? Well, uh, let me just ask one question about that. You, um, in that example, are anything from a unknown writer to a very well-known, highly rep- more unknown beginning? Uh, okay. Well, the first thing that comes up with a lot of these companies, and this is true even of smaller companies, even of solo independent film producers, because we live in a highly litigious society, they're going to want to know why they should read this. Um, and whether you're sending it by yourself, or if an agent is sending it, if a manager is sending it, if it at least comes with a letter cc'd to your attorney, all of which protects them. This is actually pretty important because, as you guys know, it's astounding how many people have similar ideas at similar times. And if you're not really strict about that you know some people think a similar idea is well i don't know i had a romantic comedy set in la they stole my idea not exactly on any given day there's probably a million people in california writing a romantic comedy set in la so the first question is getting over that hurdle um which can be done as you guys also know you go to a film festival you meet someone he says oh just send it to me i don't care about that there's a bit of a risk with that which is why i advocate people getting an attorney and doing anything they can to get an attorney um I don't know how this works in all cities, but I will tell you in Los Angeles, you can call the Beverly Hills Bar Association and ask for an entertainment attorney who is willing to take new clients. And for, last time I checked, I think a $25 fee, they will refer you to a list of attorneys who are willing to do that. This is something writers, producers, directors might think about, whether they have an agent or not. Kamala, of course, being such a veteran actress, knows that agents come and go. (laughs) So can't hurt to have the attorney as well. Once this phase is over with and the script gets in, 
um, whether it's a small company or a big company, there's probably some story development staff. One of the reasons I do what I do is because, as I say to people often, there are more film festivals than ever. There are more people making movies, but there are less and less in-house story development people. The studios have conglomerated. They've shut those departments down. There are a lot of people out there making movies without any real guidance with respect to story development. Uh, a, a detour on this topic, back to what you said, Cam, about some of the professors I had. That same professor, Ken Evans, said to us very early on, never condescend to receptionists, assistants, runners, readers. Some of these people are better educated than you. Some of them have PhDs. Some of them have sold screenplays. So one thing I kind of bristle at is people who are trying to make movies but have this kind of contempt for what they call the suits. Some of those suits really know what they're doing. Most of them really know what they're doing in terms of selling a movie because that's their main job. And, you know, there are examples. Um, Nancy Myers, who, of course, has been a tremendously successful writer, director, and producer, I guess, of her own movies for years, started as a development executive. This is rarely commented upon. The press prefers the story of the person who worked as a waiter or, you know, painter or whatever, but there's a lot of very talented and serious-minded people in all positions in the mainstream film business, but in my experience, particularly in the story development area. So your script comes in, and someone's going to read it. Um, the goal of the writer, producer, director, is to get the highest person possible to read it. Um, how many people are there that could be read? I mean, how, how many? Is there a hierarchy of, of titles or in that division? Yes, and it sort of follows, you know, you'll see if someone starts a new company, let's say it's just the three of us. It might be Kamala, president and CEO, Joel, director of development, Tom, story editor. And that model is based on what goes on at studios where you have senior VP, senior VP, exec VP, 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 you know, story editor, creative exec, all in the story development department. Um, and yeah, it is, I regret to say, a process of getting as many votes as you can. Um, I had a script, for example, once that a big agency was very serious about, and we got a very high number of votes on the literary committee at the agency, but it was simply not a high enough number. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of people who might read it, and the question is, can you generate some heat about the script within the company? and sometimes outside the company, competing offers. One of the things I say is everyone's favorite phrase uh, is bidding war. Wow, I actually have two different companies interested, and this type of thing can be handled totally ethically. It's not a matter of playing people off against each other. It's just a matter of the simple reality of, well, this guy's offering me this, and you are offering me this. You know that very well, Cam, from having been an actress and segued into directing. You know, it's a, a real struggle to get people to see you out of one box and into the other. So, you know, anyway, yes, you hopefully get enough yes votes, and then maybe comes the process of it being acquired. And the next big phase, I think, is staying on the picture as the writer or the director when they 
say, well, we like it, but we want some changes in this direction or that. Can you just tell me something about um, when you personally read the script, um, you, you do you write coverage. What is that coverage like? What are the what what exactly do you prepare to uh, for every script that you read? In my own business now, I will do whatever the client wants. Um, I tell people, you know, I've been hired by a director and a major star. I won't mention their names because they'd probably rather that this didn't come out. To sit in a room for seven hours and argue on the director's behalf for a scene that should stay in the movie when the star wanted it out. Um, so I tell people, if you want me to just give you notes on one character, one scene, that's fine. If you want the most detailed notes. I generally don't do synopses for people, although I've done... Oh, man. I may have done more than 50 or 70,000 synopses of screenplays in my time. Are you serious? 50 to 70,000? Well, I'll just tell you, uh, when I was a story analyst full-time in different years, it's not uncommon to read at least 10 and maybe 20 projects a week, whether they're full books, outlines, screenplays. So right there, that's what's 20 times 52, about a thousand. <laughs> I think we'll have to check with the mathematics podcast about that. I, I know that for, I figured it out one time. I think I was actually, I think I had read between work in New York and L.A. somewhere well above twenty to 30,000 projects or something. But okay, so what is a synopsis? Not, no, movie business math, I'm okay. I, abstract math, no. What is the, um, okay, what does a synopsis like this look like? Usually a page to two pages, single-spaced, um, just telling the story. You can. It varies with different companies, but I can tell you the best story analysts at the better companies write, uh, they're just good writers. They write a synopsis that is entertaining, clear, the words are well chosen, there are no typos. Uh, you will see synopses that are just sort of slapdash you know, and, and not thought out, but the story analyst knows that the more readable his work is, the more the executive appreciates reading his work. Um, act what, what do people get paid to, to be readers? Is that some, a good entry-level job for some of people that may be looking for something to do in the business and don't necessarily have um, a clear idea yet of where they want to come in? It's a good entry-level job for all the reasons you just said. That said, I don't think readers n get paid nearly enough, and I don't think a lot of people in our society get paid nearly enough. I won't speak for other societies because I haven't lived in other countries, but I can tell you that what I paid my readers in the mid-'80s as an executive and in the late-'80s has not significantly gone up, and it's quite scandalous. Well, you know, you want to know exact dollar figures of what goes on? Well... There are still people paying $40, $50 for a synopsis and comments of a screenplay. Um, and I'm actually a trained speed reader back in the days when they had Evelyn Wood reading dynamics. Oh, you too, Kamala, yeah. Well, I found that, you know, amazing. I mean, I learned so much about different ways of reading stuff. But people, you know, read at different rates. And if you take $60 and break it down over two or three hours, it isn't an enormous amount of money per hour living in Los Angeles. 
And then there are people paying less, and some people pay more. And there is a story analyst union that used to be much stronger. That's, I guess that's sort of a separate story for an election year, the story analyst union, which was bigger and stronger and had some problems. But it's, it's not... I know people who've made it their life's work, who've actually been married and had children while working as story analysts. But I can't say I see too much of that going on. It's more recommended, in my view, as a way to very quickly learn a lot about material, how the business works, um, and what goes on at places where people are making movies. Sometimes uh, writers get very disturbed because they send their material to a company and then they say, you know, wow, you know, I've just spent five years writing this script and it goes to someone that's just fresh out of school and they pass on it and that's the end of that and it doesn't get any further. Is that something that you've noticed to occur? If, if, if a young um, story reader just pa passes on the project, is that dead in the water at that company? Very interesting question, because there's a lot of levels to that question. Um, one thing I do and also uh, talk to clients about is, and you know, I didn't invent this, it's fairly common knowledge within the studio system. Once there is a negative coverage on a screenplay within a studio, it's very hard to erase that perception. Um, so you want to keep your screenplay out of the hands of people in the story, you know, the, in the, just the generic readers at the studio because there you are one day telling some high-level executive, it's great, everybody loves it, and he's thinking, yeah, but we got that coverage from 10 years ago that says it's no good, and he can't get that out of his brain. When you say coverage, is that the synopsis that you're talking about? Is that the same thing, or is, that, is coverage done in a different way? Coverage is usually the term for a logline, which, as you I know, is a one-sentence description of a story, usually one sentence if it's a good logline, a synopsis of the story, and then comments. A lot of coverage forms have this checkbox system that people seem to like where it says maybe characters, excellent, good, fair, poor. kind of gives people a quick way of getting up to speed on the comments they're about to read. But... Um, and then... At the end, it says re pass or uh, recommend, meaning pass on it, don't bother with it, or recommend that it goes to the next level. But I've, I've seen some of this stuff. It's very clinical and somewhat disturbing. Well, yeah, and there's also a middle category often called consider. And when I read for HBO, one of the executives teased me for initiating the category of mild consider <laughs> splitting hairs but yeah uh, that's interesting too Kim. what do you mean by disturbing because I could name a, a lot of things I think are disturbing but I'm interested in which ones particularly you were thinking of if you can remember uh, well it's just the notion that um, you take a what's hopefully a piece of art right and then you're putting little boxes next to it and you're sort of trying to shoehorn it into a couple of paragraphs of of analysis and and I just mean for the artist it's somewhat difficult to bear yeah and it reminds me of the famous story of when the Doors submitted their demo tape to I think 
I guess I better get this right. All right, I won't say the executive's name in case I'm wrong. And the executive listened to the first 10 seconds of four or five tracks and said, sorry, we can't use any of this. To which Jim Morrison just said, well, that's okay, man. We don't want to be used anyway. But I mean, so yes, it's, it's very offensive to people. Um, the trick, I think, which I guess gets into a very big subject is, um, and again, I think often of music, sports, acting, really comp- politics, perhaps really competitive type um, um, endeavors. You have to get to the point where you are so strong about your material and your vision that um, that stuff bounces off. I think the first time I read this was when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I think around that time, which Alex Haley wrote with Malcolm X, and I think around that time he said something very much like that, like you have to be so unshakable in your belief in yourself. Now, I don't suggest that comes overnight. I still wish I was better at that, but I recognize that as one of the goals. And then you can start to do some amazing things because people say things, they don't offend you as much. You don't go into the I'm offended mode so much as you go into the that's inaccurate mode or I don't agree with that. And believe it or not, a little bit like Woody Allen's joke about, what did he say, 90% of success is showing up? People are often so not used to anybody standing up for themselves that the minute someone does, it's like, well, I better read that script again because this guy is not, or, you know, woman is not backing down. I think that's that's excellent advice. And I think that if you as an artist really believe in what you're doing and you've taken the time and put the work into it, um, then stand, stand behind it and don't, don't allow people to uh, rewrite your, your stuff for you. I don't mean physically rewrite it. I mean rewrite it in terms of how you perceive it. And you will find somebody that agrees with you. Yeah, that's that is really good advice. I, I, one of the things that I want to ask, though, Joel, can I just say yeah. something before you ask another question? Two things about that, Kamala, that I agree with. Um, one thing I say to writers and produ- filmmakers is, people always worry about their script getting rewritten or their film getting recut or whatever. Of course, that all happens. But I tell people, if you know your project well enough. There's literally a way of writing it or shooting it so that they can't change it that much because you haven't left them the room to change it. And on top of that, if you understand it that well, I mean, we don't live in a totally insane world. People cannot walk into a room and make a ridiculous suggestion to change your movie and get over with that. So, yeah, that also comes out of your confidence. You'll say, no, no, on page 23, what actually the character says is this. And that usually, again, you know, takes care of the the lightweight person who's hoping that they'll just come in with some nonsense and intimidate you. Now, this may sound callous at this point, but I do want to ask this. Do you run across a lot of great scripts, or do you find that you read a lot of really bad scripts and then occasionally you come up with, you've come up with a really good script? Interesting you say that, Joel, because that's actually something I address in very similar words on my website. Um, First of all, what is good or what is great? Um, Everyone has a sort of different definition of that. 
I think the people who just made the new Indiana Jones movie have a different definition of great than the people who made Then She Found Me. You know, I mean, some people are going for one kind of audience, one size audience, and one, some are not. Um, but aside from that, most of the stuff I have read or dealt with as a consultant or even seen on the screen, it's not that it's bad so much as it's maybe not as good as it could be or not targeted to anyone. Um, one of my professors at USC, when asked by some student about, when some student had an outburst that, you know, 90% of the movies that were coming out were awful, the professor said, 90% of everything is awful. You're really only competing with the upper 10%. I mean, and I would say reading screenplays, there's a 1% to 5% I read where within 10 or 12 pages you say, this is amazing, this makes sense, this is clear. Uh, there's a large 70 or 80% that is just sort of okay. And then maybe there's a 10 or 20% that's really sort of amateurish or you know, just beginner or off the wall in some way or whatever. Um, and that reminds me, the one thing that would interest, I think, your listeners is the way people read screenplays is very is a very important thing to consider. Uh, I, when we do the, the uh, television version of Fad Free Film, this will come across better, but I often tell people, the script you write on spec, as you know, mean, you know, for free, not getting paid, should be like when you're standing, this is the male version, I, I can't quite do the female version, or the male heterosexual version. It should be like when you're standing in a bar with your friend talking, and suddenly you see a woman in the corner and you say, oh, forget it, I gotta go talk to her. That's my wife, you know. You need to have that kind of attraction to the project, because you're up against people who do. And if you have that, you will stay home on Friday nights to write it, and you will weather all kinds of insults and inaccurate comments about it. If you don't have that, it's going to be very hard. And when people read your script, they respond in a similar way. They read the first pages, and first they're looking to see if it's competent, if it makes sense, if it has some style and flair. And very often, people will just sort of be so grateful that the script is clean and coherent and seems to be about something urgent, they start actually rooting for it. They start thinking, oh, this is not bad. Oh, I hope the story and you know, I hope the concept makes sense and the story is good. And pretty soon it's like, oh, this is great. This is such a refreshing change from the stuff I read that isn't thought out, isn't targeted to any particular market. So um, it really isn't so much about good and bad, um, which, by the way, explains why so many movies get made and some people love them and some can't stand them because they have a different definition of what they're going for. And uh, my last word on that is, I do like to say to people, the good news is, I've always thought this is true, but it's really truer than ever today with new distribution systems and new technologies. There is an audience for everyone. I mean, maybe excluding uh, 2% that's really terribly unrealistic or whatever, but there's an audience for every kind of movie but not necessarily the same audience. You have to target what size audience, what kind of country, what, you know, what, what, what territories would it do, what countries. What, I, I have a friend who was uh, running a company that owns an enormous library of Japanese horror movies, and they have managed to set up remakes at the American studios for a few of them. 
and I was saying, well, she's got the greatest job in the world. Wow, she's got all these movies that are made. They're trying to remake them. But she told me, well, you wouldn't believe the cultural differences. Many of our projects feature not just women protagonists, but teenage girls. And the American studios are rather resistant to making a movie with a teenage girl protagonist. To her credit, I will say, she also added, it's not that they have anything against women or teenage girls. They don't think the teenage girls or young women who can play the role are big enough stars to bring people into theaters. So this goes back to trying to understand the real reasons for things rather than the faux reasons that play to your resentment or impatience or sense of entitlement or whatever. Now, there are a lot of screenwriting gurus out there like Robert McKee uh, that talk about a certain kind of formulaic writing of scripts, or at least a structure. Yeah, I would have to interrupt and change, because I don't think, um, I think one of the things that McKee says very clearly is, is, uh, is not, it's not about being formulaic, it's, this is my understanding of, of what he's saying, is that if you have a structure that is satisfying to the human being and that structure is based on the age-old sort of sitting around the campfire telling a story thing then you're free to deviate from that structure once the the basis of it is there but if you have none of that um if you have no form it's kind of like um you know not having knowing how to draw um, calling yourself a painter and flinging paint at the wall, which is one thing if you're Pollock, but it's another thing if you have no sort of technique whatsoever as a painter. Right. So my um, question for Tom is, how uh, important is structure in the in the writing of a screenplay? Is it something that you find when you read a screenplay, hey, you know, this is a really good topic and this is a really it seems like this might be a good scre- screenplay if they got some kind of structure into it. Um, how important is that? Well, that's all very interesting. Um, shorthand, structure is everything. Or, you know, as Vince Lombardi, the football coach of the Packers, said, the actual he's often quoted as saying winning is everything, but what he actually said, I believe, is winning is not everything, but the effort to win is the only thing. Okay, structure is not everything, but it's one of the really important things. And just to, whether it's a conventional Hollywood picture or the most experimental movie, uh, as one film instructor once said to me about, I think he was talking about the character, uh, the De Niro character in Taxi Driver, we are discussing how effective that was. But his point was, even a psychotic has his or her own internal logic. And you have to figure out what that is and depict it, not just assume that a psychotic person does whatever. Um, Just to back up for a second to what Kamala said, I took Bob McKee's three-day story structure class one time. Uh, My girlfriend nagged me into it. I've been to film school. I don't need to hear this guy, whatever. But I was glad I went because there's always something you haven't heard. And um, what you just said, he said when I was there, I mean, he said the exact same thing about... I remember the example he gave was he said people like Ingmar Bergman and Louis Bunuel and other people who... Fellini, who broke rules of filmmaking, didn't start by breaking rules of filmmaking. They started by making conventional films. So it was actually 
easier for them to break the rules in interesting ways because they understood the conventional way. And, you know, we quibbled about that, some of us at his seminar. Bunuel, for example, is kind of an instinctive uh, iconoclastic genius who, if you actually look at his early films, was breaking rules before he knew what the rules were. But he did make a lot of conventional stuff, so, yeah, it certainly helps to know what the rules are. Um, one of your favorite people, Joel, to give a other example, Jimi Hendrix, uh, played with more musicians in sort of routine gigs than practically anybody on earth. And so by the time he got to do what he wanted, he not only knew what had been done, but he knew what he wanted to do. It's the same way with filmmaking, um, which is why I advocate seeing a lot of stuff. Um, anything. It can't hurt you to see any movie. I don't say you have to stay for the whole thing. I don't say you have to like it. But it will help you in immeasurable ways, including this point you bring up now, which is, what if I want to try something different? What if I want to do it this way? Your mind will start thinking like, well, I did see that movie that did it differently. That's interesting. And that sort of worked. Maybe I can try that. That's uh, how you can uh, start to develop your own style as a movie maker. But in general, yes, the structure of stuff, it's if screenwriting, which, you know, I will put the asterisk on it that it, it again, and I try to stress this with my clients, it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, to sort of give the comic exaggeration of this, some movies don't have to have great characters. I know that sounds heretical, but people are not turning out for some of these big tentpole extravaganzas because the characters are as great as the characters in, you know, The Apartment or Shampoo or The Philadelphia Story. They're going because of the event. Other movies don't have special effects and offer something else. So... Let's take the example um, of uh, the recent movie Iron Man, which is it's, it's very interesting to me because I don't like these movies. I couldn't tolerate Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> I don't like Shrek, you know, oh, Shrek I did like. But I, I don't like the movies that are just essentially watching, you know, two years of 200 CGI guys locked in a room, and it's great if you like. But I didn't feel anything for anybody. I didn't know what was going on. Everybody was fighting with everybody, battles, whatever. The reason I did, however, really like Iron Man. And I also like that Batman Returns. And I th and those are the only two such movies that I have liked. And I think that I like them because of the character. Because it's, it's almost incidental that they are um, Iron Man or Bat people or whatever. Because they have some kind of thing going on. They have... Um, an internal struggle, they have conflicts within themselves that are sort of reflected in the exterior world. They're going somewhere, they're trying to achieve something. Generally, in my case, I like it when they're trying to become better people. Um, and so I was glued to both of those films, whereas I have zero interest in seeing Indiana Jones. I apologize to all the people that worked on it. Um, and I think that, that when you boil down what is that distinction, and I think that is the distinction ultimately between a movie that's going to not only make the expected big pile of money, but the unexpectedly even bigger pile of money is that it will resonate with people as human beings. 
Well, Iron Man's a very interesting example as a story development question because the guys who founded Marvel Comics and made it successful um, were really good at some of the things that go into basic storytelling. Uh, I was... I remember reading some of the first Marvel comics, and the Iron Man character is a great character uh, with a great backstory and a great front story and a great hook. Um, and I think that is the difference between a lot of these tentpole movies and others. Probably for me, for my tastes, too, I have a hard time watching a movie that doesn't have more than one or two levels. I don't know if I could sit through something in which the characters are just of no interest. What you say, for example, are people become better whatever, more interesting, deeper, that always grabs me. Um, but yeah, I mean, other kinds of movies that don't have that going on, my point to a client, for example, would be you're putting yourself at risk by limiting the picture. I had a tremendous screenwriting teacher at NYU named Venable Herndon, may he rest in peace, who wrote Alice's Restaurant and some other movies, couple uncredited. And he used to drive us insane in his class because we would read our stuff and he would never jump on us or be critical or whatever. He would usually just sit back afterward and say, it's interesting, but could it be more? And he would just get that into your brain so that you were never really so satisfied with your own work. And you were always asking, could it be more? And that would be my instinct with those kind of movies, Cam. If you and I were developing one, I'd say, Kamala, I love the CGI stuff for this audience, and but, you know, can't we just make the dynamic between the three or four main characters deeper and richer so that we get a little sliver of that other audience that doesn't go for this kind of picture? Um, those are the kind of things that separate the movies that make a lot of money from the ones that don't or that disappoint. And I would add also that's the same with critical reception. Um, if you're going for a narrow statement of some kind, preaching to the choir, for example, you will get the narrow audience. If you can make that statement or that theme or that view of whatever you're depicting more three-dimensional, more challenging, more eye-opening, you will get people who will say things like, I didn't want to go see that movie, but I was fascinated. I have to go see it again. Do you think there's something in the screenwriter, you were saying this, you told that, analogy about the being in a bar and seeing the woman across the room and saying, that's my wife. Do you think that there is something about having the need to say something that is uh, absolutely the most one of the most important things about writing a screenplay? I think a lot of times when these sequels are made um, about some something that was successful already, the sequels aren't as good because the people who write it were either hired to write it uh, and don't have this innate need to tell that story or um, the initial thing that was uh, supposed to be said has already been said. Do you think that that is an important thing about a great screenplay? Absolutely. And the only thing I would say for a lot of my potential clients and a lot of the listeners are don't beat yourself up if you don't have that right at the beginning. It takes a long time to develop that kind of passion and sense uh, in fact, my experience is the more you stay at it, the more you find out what you can do and what you can't do, and you're okay with that. Most people will not be able to make five different kinds of movies equally well. So, um, yeah, when you really know what you want to do, it's it's just different from doing it because someone told you it'll make money or it's what's 
the happening thing at the moment or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I try to do that with my clients. So what do you really want to write? Uh, I remember at NYU when I was first making short films, uh, one guy in a class just didn't want to do anything. And the professor said to him, what do you love? And he said, nothing. And he said, well, what do you hate? And the guy said, fish. And he said, so make a film about fish. You know, do something. <laughs> <laughs> Me and that guy should meet because I, too, hate fish. <laughs> yes, you do. You should collaborate on something. Okay, so I think we're at the end of the show now. Um, unless you guys have something on your agenda that you would like to uh, talk about before uh, we wrap up the show. Tom. Well, I would. Uh, I, I can think of one or two other things to say yeah. um, if we have time, or if, and then maybe any other questions you have. Okay. Um, I put a lot of emphasis on the market for movies. My website says the right screenplay for the right market. And it's, again, sort of a half-empty, half-full thing. I give an example of some people I met who said they wanted to make a horror film, low-budget, with the special effects off-screen and no women in it. And I was sort of thinking, well, the market for horror films, low-budget horror films particularly, is usually guys, teenagers and guys in their 20s, and they want the special effects on screen, and they want some women in the movie. Yet the irony is, a movie like 1408 with John Cusack was exactly that. It had limited special effects. I actually haven't seen it, but I've seen trailers and read about it. It had we major it. special effects. I thought yeah, the whole idea major. was that there were only sort of implied, ah. Oh. All this stuff happened in this room, and it was uh, well beyond the, the oh, okay. space of a room. Okay, so then that's not a good example. But I suppose if I thought about it, I could think of a movie in which the terror was more implied and Blair Witch Project well there's a great example there's nothing uh, well there's almost nothing shown explicitly in that movie whether it's horror or sex or violence or anything so yes and that was a phenomenon um, another story I'd like to tell actually two stories both coming from my uh, he, he's my friend these days but he started out as just a producer of a movie I like very much Petulia which you guys have seen um a good story to remember, Ray Wagner has been a producer for a very long time. Um, very classy guy, impeccable taste, very grounded in reality. And I remember asking him about Petulia, which was made in the late 60s, because it's one of my favorite movies. And he said, well, you know, Tom, things were so different then. The movie cost $800,000, which to people who don't know movie financing stuff is not even a lot of money for the late 60s for a movie with two major movie stars in it he said you know if it opened and within 30 days in the u.s made some money you were okay with the studio if it did a little business in france england italy you were a hero if it even played in japan or south america you were a god that's really only 40 years ago but things have changed so much today people just civilians as they're often referred to within the movie business know what's opening friday know what it grossed on by Monday. Uh, I read that the LA Times now has a thing where you can predict what you think the opening box office on a movie will be, and people actually get engaged in this. So everything's changed with respect to that, and it forces you, the filmmaker, to think in terms of the market and how you're going to sell this, how you're going to get the money, raise the money. As my uh, friend and 
sometime partner Michael Schaefer, a very good writer, is fond of saying, you want to watch out for the guys who say to you, well, we just want to make a movie, as opposed to, well, is anybody going to see it? Is it going to make any money? Are you going to get it into any film festivals? Or do you just want to be able to tell people you made a movie? Because that only goes so far. And one other thing I'll say about the whole process of trying to make a movie or a TV program or a new media project, because I deal with that stuff as well with clients. Another great story I have about Ray Wagner was, this is kind of like your story, Campbell, your bit about uh, apologizing for the, to the people who worked on Pirates of the Caribbean, were you saying, in case they worked on Well, I had a meeting with Ray once, only a day or two before I had a meeting with the late Marvin Wirth, who was a tremendous film producer and a great guy. He produced um, Malcolm X and Lenny. And I said to Ray, you know, Ray, I'm going to Marvin's house in a day or two to pitch him a project. And I just saw his remake of the classic French movie Diabolique, and really wasn't very good. I was disappointed, and I feel kind of nervous because you go to someone's house to talk about their new movie, you want to say there's something brilliant about it. Ray didn't miss a trick, just walking through the neighborhood, says to me, well, Tom, he got the rights to remake Diabolique. That's pretty brilliant, don't you think? (laughs) So you're working or you're not working, and you're getting paid to make a movie or you're not, and people are seeing it or they're not. That's where it all starts. Well, that's good. Okay, so um, we're at that section we call Film Bites, uh, which, as usual, I didn't explain it to Tom, but uh, uh, it's a little piece of advice for those people out there that are trying to make their film, trying to write their screenplay, trying to do whatever. Um, uh, you've said many of them throughout the the discussion today, um, but if you have any, any, uh, any other bit of wisdom that you want to impart to our listeners, um, please, this is the space to do it. Well, um, if there's any specific areas you're interested in, in the little time we have left, please mention them. But I will say, as generally as I can, like it says in the the Tao Te Ching, the ancient book of Chinese wisdom, do your work and then step back. (laughs) Try to just do what you need to do and separate that from the gossip, the naysayers, anything else that distracts you. you need a focus on the work and hopefully a focus on what you like about the work and doing it. And if you can do that, as we were saying before about people, whether it's in story development or the editing room or on the set saying things that don't make sense, those things will sort of bounce off because you know what you're doing. Uh, Every successful artist I've ever met or interviewed or worked for has at least some of this sort of unshakable belief that what I'm doing is right in some way and it needs to get done. And like I say, if you're, you know, 18 or 22 or 24 and you aren't waking up every day feeling that, no problem. That's the whole journey. But if you can get to that, everything else is easier. And I will say one more thing about this too, I guess, Joel, because I like to give people the sense that the movie business is fun and can be fun, and it isn't all this backstabbing stuff that a lot of the press loves to emphasize. My experience of the movie business is uh, the American philosopher William James once said, the universe is what you attend to, 
Uh, meaning, to me, in terms of the movie business, what you send out is what you'll get. If you are envious, inappropriately competitive, backstabbing, whatever, you'll meet people like that and you'll bond to them. If you are generous, open-minded, charitable, fun, you will meet people like that. And that's why when people say to me, well, aren't there a lot of terrible people in the movie business? I say, oh, I've met some, but most of the people I know in the business are great. And the more successful they are, the greater they are because they're happy and they don't need to hurt you and they're doing what they're doing. Um, I know, I've met, in some cases worked for tremendously successful producers, people like Ed Feldman, Ray Wagner is another, Marvin Wirth, Lauren Schuler, Donner, Dick Donner. I have never, ever been treated with anything but respect by these people, even when I didn't know what I was doing or was just starting. By contrast, the people who often won't treat me with respect are amateurs, beginners, people who just think that's how you get somewhere in the business. You don't want to be in that room. Like, the what's the Woody Allen movie, is it? The Stardust Memories, where he's on the train that's all depressive and gray, and in the next train, people are having a great time and whatever. <laughs> that's the train you want to be on in this business. Well said, well said. Um, do you have anything to add, Kamala? No, I just want to say thank you so much, Tom, for participating. I think this was very, very helpful, very useful, and uh, thank you for joining us on Fat Free Film. And you can visit Tom's website at sylvestristoryworks.com. We'll put a link to it on the uh, on our webpage at fatfreefilm.com. Thanks very much, guys. It's always great to see you and talk to you, and I would do this just for the fun of it, much less for... For all the money that we're making. <laughs> 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 all right. See you later. Yeah.